0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 1. You know, we've been studying and reading and observing how Babylon threatened and indeed finally did overrun Jerusalem in the time of Daniel. And viewing that video, it it just struck me how we're living in a day and a time when indeed, again, Babylon is on the verge of overrunning Western society. And just as Israel and Judah had been warned for 200 years by all their prophets, not to take all that God had given them lightly, not to uh, go off into idolatry, but rather to walk with God and obey God, and how they disobeyed him, and indeed all the, all the prophetic warnings came to pass. Today, on our very doorstep, we are seeing the same threats. That the modern day prophets, over the last 50 years, who have spoken uh, to the church in, in Western culture, have warned of these things. And now we see we are indeed on the verge of uh, societal calamity, actually. So I don't know what God has in store for us. I'm hoping and praying revival. I'm hoping and praying that more and more and more Christians would be committed truly to the prospect of actually taking their faith outside the walls of the church and living it in, in and actually making disciples more and more and more. And I think that given that fact, just, just think if every one of us, if every one of us made one disciple, we would not have enough room for all the people. Isn't that amazing? If we just made two disciples, we'd be meeting six times a week. We have to hire extra pastors. We have to make some of you preach. Whoa! Daniel chapter one. We uh, we left off at uh, at verse eight. We'll pick it up there this morning. And uh, last time we saw the king of Babylon Nebuchadnezzar come and take over Jerusalem and carry off into captivity some of the uh, young men, the nobles, and um, members of the royal family, and as well carry off some of the articles of worship from the temple. And uh, Daniel and his friends were uh, notably, I think, given new names as a sign of their re-education and their re-inculturation into Babylonian culture. as we read those texts and, and we pick up our account here, um, <clears throat> apparently Daniel and uh, his friends apparently actually just took hold of the privileges offered them at Nebuchadnezzar University. Their attitude, I think, is was to cooperate. In fact, that's what Jeremiah had told them, right? Back in Jeremiah 10, 29, go there, settle down, make lives for yourselves and such. So, so their attitude was to cooperate, but without compromise. We talked some about that last week. Up to this point, Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and Mishael have, have given us no record. There's no record that we, that we can find um, of resistance to their assimilation into the Babylonian culture, into the Babylonian society. We see that they have received these new names. There's no no fighting. They've been renamed. And apparently they accept the names. We see that uh, they have submitted to, and they certainly will for three years, submit to this educational curriculum that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had set up for them. And also, possibly, as thought by some, even maybe they've had their gender erased. And so you see there's this, they're, they're, they're melding into this culture. They're not fighting it, they're not kicking against the goads, apparently. And I think all of this makes their next move Fascinating, in verse 8. So let's read the text, beginning at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. That phrase just grabs me. And gave them vegetables instead. Young child's dream to have vegetables, right? (laughs) Oh, joy. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So here's the setting. They, they've embraced Babylonian culture. Uh, those last verses are very really summary verses uh, and they've now, they've now uh, uh, launched out on their, their careers as, as government people for Nebuchadnezzar. But verse 8 tells us, here's a point at which apparently Daniel draws the line. I'm going to enculturate, I'm going I'm to participate, I'm going to do all these things, but here is where I draw the line. Where does he draw the line? Over food. A couple of questions. What does Daniel hope to accomplish by this stand? And why has he chosen the area of diet as the moral and theological line over which he refuses to step? You would think, he would say, we are not going to immerse ourselves in Babylonian culture to the degree that we learn all about your gods. We're not going to study astrology and all the the, the godless kinds of things. You would think that he would pick on something much more substantial to draw the line over. He draws the line at food. Now, while Daniel and his friends say yes to the culture, they do so with such a spirit of detachment that at any point the answer no could be given no matter what the cost and it could be given loudly and clearly. Do we live our lives in a sense in America? We are enculturated, aren't we not? We are well enculturated into American culture. Secular culture, we are well acquainted with it, aren't we? But do we live in such a way, as we say yes to everything, do we live in such a way that at any minute we can say no? Or are we so invested that we can't say no? Does that, does that make sense to you? The whole idea, the whole concept is to live life in such a way that you hold on loosely to the things of this world. If you hold on too tightly, there'll come a time when you need to say no, and it's gonna be very difficult if in fact you even would say no. And many of us have been tested at those various points uh, in our present present experience. You see, Daniel and his friends, in effect, and this is a key for us, they remain inner strangers, inner strangers to the life and the culture in which they are apparently outwardly and fully involved. It's kind of like the little kid who says, all right, I'll stand up, but inside I'm really sitting down. (laughs) Right? They never sacrifice their inner conviction that they belong body and soul to a kingdom other than that of Babylon. And the same is true for us. We, we are fully invested in American culture and society and politics and all that sort of thing. But inside, we belong to another kingdom, don't we? So while they settle down in Babylonian life, they remain always aware that in all their duties and all their temptations, and this is important, all that happens, they are being put to the test Not by Nebuchadnezzar, but by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is putting them into situations, trying them, testing them, proving them. And will they prove faithful? The same principle applies to our life. No matter where we are. Is God sovereign? Does he not put us in different situations? He is orchestrating, engineering life in all the environments in which we find ourselves, and there are all opportunities to demonstrate what? Faithfulness. And some of them are much more trying than others. Some of them are much more demanding than others. But the challenge for us, again, as we see reflected in Daniel's life and the life of his three friends, is will they remain faithful in this process of immersion into Babylonian culture. They are prepared to serve Babylon. It's clear. They're prepared to build up its society, to shape its history, but never to the extent of sacrificing their own national history for that of Babylon. They're prepared to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, but never to the extent of lessening their own commitment to the God of their fathers. They find it neither impossible nor even difficult to cooperate without coming to the point of violating their own conscience in its loyalty to God and to His Word. They can even enjoy their Babylonian life, but they are always ready to resist when the interests of Babylon clash with the interests of the kingdom of God. You and I, God means for us to enjoy all the good gifts He's provided. Everything good comes from our Father's hand, doesn't it? He means for us to enjoy life. But He means for us to know and to be committed to the proposition there's a point at which we will not go, there's a line we draw on the sand, we will not cross that line. We will not violate our conscience. We will not disavow, in effect, by our attitude, our behavior, the principles of the kingdom of God. They can speak the word no always loudly, clearly, decisively, and politely. <laughs> In these early chapters of the book of Daniel, and, and most notably, there's, there's a couple of, uh, of, of uh, notable events, unforgettable incidents. You see them reflected in chapter 3 and chapter 6, and, and these are situations in which we clearly hear their no spoken forcefully, dramatically, publicly. Three of them said it when they were threatened with the fiery furnace back in chapter 3. They were threatened with the fiery furnace if they did not bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. They said, no, we will not bow down. You go to chapter 6, Daniel said no when he was being threatened with being thrown into the lion's den if he would not quit praying to God. Daniel said no. But here, this is something key, I think. I believe their resistance didn't just appear at that moment. I believe their resistance began a while back. I believe their resistance began in this quiet, undramatic interview which took place within the privacy of the office of the Dean of Students at Nebuchadnezzar U with Ashpanaz, the official. A decision was made there and then I believe that took just as much determined courage and put their lives at as much risk as their later more dramatic decisions would do. I believe that if this first decision had not been made, there would later have been no resistance at all to the fiery furnace, or to the threat of being cast into the lion's den. You know, the, a, a few years ago, a number of years ago, there was this, there was this um, um, theme. Uh, what would Jesus do? Uh, you know, there's a book and ra- bracelets and T-shirts and, you know, what would Jesus do? And everyone jumps on the bandwagon. And, and so the, the idea was that, that you, you find yourself in a place and, and what would Jesus do here? So I'm going to do what Jesus would do as if instantly you're going to do it. It's an illusion. You wouldn't do what Jesus would do in a crisis moment unless way back here you had been learning to do what Jesus would do in those quieter moments. Does that make sense? So I'm growing more like him. I'm growing more like him. You see, God is giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity in our life every single day to, to learn, to grow, to be more like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus would do, so that when we reach those points of crisis, we would probably do what Jesus would do. So I submit to you, back here in this interview with Ashpenaz, when Daniel draws the line, he says, I I don't want to defile myself with with the king's food. He draws that line. He makes that stance. And I submit to you, that is what what enabled then him to say no and to risk his life in the lion's den and, and the other three to risk their lives in the fiery furnace. They practiced. They practiced. Does this make sense to you? See, in Daniel's time, the danger to his own life and to that of his own nation, which had had to be faced, the danger was that of drifting into complete conformity with the Babylonian culture, and they lose their identity. They're so immersed. You know, America historically has been called a, a melting pot, and we hear much about uh, being Americanized or, or being homogenized so that. And and America is not so much a melting pot anymore as it is a stew pot. You know, the potatoes kind of stay amongst themselves and and the beets stay among themselves and the carrots stay among themselves and such. And you get this flavor, but really there's all these distinct groups. That's America today. And this is is what I believe Daniel was attempting to do. He was attempting not to be, in the the captives from Judah, be so absorbed that they lose totally their identity of who they are and who God had called them to be. The result, if they did, the result would be the loss of, of their understanding, of the loss of their vision of why God brought them into existence in the first place as a nation and indeed why Daniel existed. Have you ever asked yourself, why am I here? Lots of people do that. And Christians, a lot of Christians don't understand why they're here. What's my purpose? God has designed you and, and fitted you and equipped you and gifted you for a specific purpose. And it's for His glory. But you can be so immersed into the culture that you, that you, don't, you lose sight of that. You, you, you're, you're, you don't have any understanding of what your particular thing is. Why God made you? Why is the church here? Why do we have church? See, all these questions seem so elementary, but you can be so taken and so immersed and so absorbed into the the secular culture that you lose sight of your purpose and the purpose for the church. The church is not just to come on Sunday Sunday, and sing some songs and listen to me yell and throw a few bucks in the bucket. We gather together to encourage and strengthen one another so that when we leave here we go back out into the mission field with a renewed sense of who we are and why we exist. For men placed as Daniel was placed and thinking as Daniel did, they believed they could not serve God with a clear conscience unless a line was drawn somewhere and a firm stand taken at some certain point. And I think you'll agree, each one of us. And it varies for everyone. There are, there are people of varying maturities and experience, and at some point, you can draw the line here where another person has to draw the line there. I can't tell you, you can't do that and and, and, and impose my experience and my choice and decision where I draw the line on you. But I can say to you, where do you draw the line? Where is your line in the sand? Over what will you not compromise and why? See, the question was very simply, where was the line to be drawn? Should, should there be a line drawn? What do you think? Yeah, yeah absolutely, but the question is where? where? Where was compromise to be possible and where was compromise to be impossible? Think about that. Daniel draws a line at a, at a seemingly inconsequential point Eating royal food, what is the deal with that? You would think he would pick a much more substantial uh, place to which to draw his line. Why has he chosen the area of diet as the moral and theological line over which he refuses to step? That question is not an easy one to answer with confidence. Let me propose to you a number of rationale for that question. Number one, and logically, our first inclination, and for most commentators that I read, the first inclination would be that Daniel is firm in his commitment to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And on the surface, it would seem he would have good reason for this. Linguistically, in the Hebrew, the word for defile denotes a religious defilement. And the word defile is used twice in verse 8. A religious defilement. So that would lead you to think, wow, these, these Old Testament food laws are very, very important. In other words, Daniel wants to keep kosher. However, I suggest to you that if Daniel's intention was to keep kosher, then why refrain from wine? There is no place in the Old Testament food laws which forbade a Jew from drinking wine, except with one exception. What's the one exception? The Nazarites. Numbers chapter 6. They were forbidden to drink wine. If you go to chapter 10 and verse three of Daniel, we read that later in his life, apparently he did eat choice food, meat and wine. So apparently later on, he didn't keep kosher, which makes me wonder if in fact this was his reason in the first place. Now it's possible that Daniel was convinced that under the circumstances of the exile, there could be no compromise with those traditional food laws of the Old Testament. The point being that it's possible that he was thinking, If look, if we, if we, if we give ground here over the food laws, that's just gonna open the floodgates to giving ground everywhere. There'll be mixed marriages, there'll be idolatry, there'll be all sorts of compromises if we give ground here. So some writers think this is why he drew the line, because the be Old Testament food laws were very, very important. They would, they would be the place at which he would not compromise. But it's interesting, there were some other Old Testament prophets, most notably Hosea and Amos, that when you read their prophecies, their threats, and their warnings to Judah, it's in their, in their warnings that they implied that it would be actually impossible to keep kosher in a land of captivity. Hosea in chapter 9, verse 3, puts it this way. They, meaning uh, Ephraim, they will not remain in the Lord's land. In other words, they're going to be taken off into captivity. Ephraim will eat unclean food in Assyria. So it's going to be practically impossible to remain kosher. Amos says this. He says that the Israelites will die in an unclean land. Now, the implication of just the phrase unclean land is everything is unclean, even the food. The whole culture is going to to absorb them. So I want to suggest to you that Daniel probably is not taking a stand over the food issue because he's so much concerned with the laws of the Old Testament, mosaic dietary laws. There's a second option. It's possible that Daniel, if not motivated, again, by the dietary laws of the Old Testament, was concerned about the religious overtones of the food from the king's table. In ancient Near Eastern literature and history, it's it's nearly universal that uh, these pagan kings and rulers and leaders uh, would always offer sumptuous meals, sumptuous food to their gods. In fact, Paul talks about in Corinthians, food sacrificed to idols. And it was a stumbling block for the early Christians. And so here they are. They, you're, you're, a, you're a Mesopotamian king. And you worship these v- different gods. In this case, they, they worship the god Marduk. And so these, these, these sumptuous meals would be prepared and they would be brought and they would be laid in the temple of Marduk at the altar to this, to this idol. And then afterwards, after the idol had partaken, then whatever remained would be taken to the king's table to serve to the king, his family, and the royal court. Do you suppose that any of these Mesopotamian kings ever went hungry? No. Do you suppose that they went back to the idol and to the, and to the table in the temple there and found the food was all gone, all eaten up? Of course not. Those idols didn't eat anything. They were just idols. You know, can you imagine going to the temple? Well, my, he didn't eat today, so I guess it's all for us. And so, Daniel. Daniel may have been troubled in his conscience by eating food that was first offered to idols. Again, we see that same thing in the New Testament. However, the problem with that is that Daniel doesn't avoid all the food of the palace, does he? He does eat some of it, what does he eat? Veggies, he eats his veggies. We have no reason to think whatsoever that the vegetables were not offered to the gods along with the meat and wine. Now, if that's the case, probably this wasn't the reason for taking the stand over the food. Does that make sense to you? There's a third third thought. Daniel's motivation might have been more political than theological. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, politics and theology, were, it was very, very hard to separate because these people worship their gods and they believe their gods were determining their course and so forth. The phrase, to eat at the king's table, or to eat from the king's provision, was tantamount to accepting or to an acceptance of that king's covenant or treaty over lordship. In other words, When you eat with somebody, you are acknowledging what? Relationship with them. You're participating in a relationship, aren't you? I mean, you don't eat with people you don't like, typically, right? Unless you absolutely have to. That's generally at Christmas and Thanksgiving and... But typically, I mean, when you, you know, when you get together with people that you want to have dinner with or go out to have breakfast or lunch with, it's always people you count dear and close. Isn't that true? It's a relationship. So there's some thought here that in refusing the food that he's, when he refused the food, he's refusing the relationship. He's avoiding a political entanglement, if you will, with Nebuchadnezzar. But I think this view, too, is weak by virtue of the fact that Daniel did not make a public display of rejecting all the food from the king's table. Remember, he accepted the vegetables, didn't he? On a human level, it's clear that Daniel and his friends survived physically simply because the king sent the food and they selected the vegetables from that which the king had sent. In other words, otherwise, he'd starve. He had to eat. So I think there's another reason why Daniel takes a stand over the food issue. And I think his motivation lie more closely connected to the account itself, to the, to the, to the, to the narrative, to the story itself. By that, I mean, in some way, their diet was indeed a matter of their conscience. And by the way, this is not necessarily an argument for vegetarianism. People read this and say, ah, see, right there, vegetarianism. Please do not come up to me after the service. Please. I'm saying it right now, this is not, a rationale for vegetarianism because later on he only eats the vegetables for three years, right? He goes back to eating meat and drinking wine and stuff. Uh, Friday night and Saturday night, both services, I had people come up to tell me, yeah but you know uh, give me this long rationale for vegetarianism but if you're planning to do that please don't. I love you, but you're not gonna convince me, okay? Can I say that is that right? Preempt some. Now remember, Daniel and his three friends are in this process of education and preparation for service. Their minds as well as their bodies are being fed by the Babylonian court. True. Who's providing all this? All all this equipping. All this provision. Who's providing it all? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. If they are to prosper, then to whom should they attribute their development and their success? Who should they attribute their success and their development if they indeed flourish under the provision of King Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar! That's what he, was like. he gets all the credit. Are you with me? He gets all the credit. However, I submit to you, by refusing this food from the king, they know that it is not the king who is responsible for the fact that they, if you look at verse 15, that they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Their robust appearance usually attained by this rich fare of meat and wine, is miraculously achieved through a diet of vegetables. Church, I suggest to you, only God could have done it. Now I know, I know eating your vegetables is necessary. I've already been told by people that you're vegetarian, you have this glow, you look better. I like steak. (laughs) I like cheeseburgers. I know, I'd probably look a lot better if I didn't eat that stuff. He draws the line in the sand over this food issue because he's deliberately putting himself in God's hands. God, we're only going to eat vegetables. Because if we're to prosper, you're going to have to make it happen. Does that make sense? See, at what point in your life do you draw the line? You say, God, I'm not crossing this line. I gotta have this, gotta have that. You know, I want this success, but Lord, I am not gonna do and I'm not gonna compromise myself to make sure that it happens in my own strength. I'm not gonna no one else gets I want you to get the full credit. I'm putting myself in your hands. I'm trusting you. If this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen. If my marriage is going to flourish, it's going to flourish, God, because I'm doing the things that you say to do, and it's risky, and I'm not getting immediately the results I want, but I'm trusting you because I know that your will is good, pleasing, and perfect. If my kids are to grow up and honor you, God, I'm going to raise them in a manner that honors you, and I'm going to use your book to give me direction. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. And and you can go down the line in every issue after issue after issue that concerns us, right? We want to deliberately make some kind of expression, some kind of testimony, God, I'm trusting you. I'm living my life in such a way, I'm risking it all, my eggs are all in your basket. This diet of vegetables was only temporary. It was only for three years. As we learn from chapter 10, verse 3, David or Daniel enjoyed the rich food later in his life. If Daniel's motivation not to defile himself by, by keeping kosher, if his motivation was simply to avoid idolatrous defilement Or political entanglements, then we should question why his eating habits changed later in his life. We would expect to be some consistency. The purpose of this partial fast, and that's exactly what it was, was a partial fast, was to keep Daniel and his friends from believing that their physical appearance, and by consequence perhaps their intellectual gifts, were the gift of the Babylonian Empire. And another point, their diet was private. It wasn't public. No one knew about it, except them and God and the guard. As the four stood before Nebuchadnezzar, and as they were pronounced the best in the class, Nebuchadnezzar could take pride in the product of his provision. Can't you just see that? Wow, look what I have done in in these young men. Only Daniel and his friends really knew the truth. And you see this sets the stage for them later on because now God has blessed and honored them because they've trusted Him, and now they know that they can say no at other points. Do you follow the logic? It's just not food loss for the food loss sake. It's simply because they are putting themselves in God's hands. They're in a foreign land. They're in a desperate situation. They have to know, can they really trust God? And if God will honor them here, He'll honor them there. Daniel could say no to not praying. Threat, under threat of being thrown to the lions. Throw me to the lions. Throw me to the lions. We get to chapter 3, we read about his three friends in the the fiery furnace, and they said, our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. How can you be so confident? Only because... God has demonstrated to you already in the privacy of your own heart and life only they knew about the diet. And God honored them, made them best in the class. Would that give you confidence? Oh, amen, amen. Did they achieve their goal of this substitute diet by making public proclamations of their intentions? Huh, did they? Did they march around in, in Babylon in the, in, the ca- in the palace and say, we won't want to eat meat? <laughs> Did they carry placards? Did they stage a food strike? Did they try to get the other exiles to join them? No. Daniel quietly, quietly approached Ashpenaz and asked him for permission not to partake asked him for permission not to partake. Wow. And the chief official said, why, Daniel, certainly I'll grant you permission. Is that what happens? No, he didn't, he didn't want to. He didn't want to risk his own neck, did he? He doesn't reject Daniel out of hand brusquely or uh, violently. He could have. Could, could, the, could, the, could Ashpenaz have, have, have made trouble for Daniel and his friends, do you think? I mean, the guy's concerned about his own neck, isn't he? He says that. Could he have peremptorily gone to, to Nebuchadnezzar's? Oh, King, I need you to know something here. Just in case these guys only want to eat vegetables, they don't want your good food, the rich food, they just want vegetables. So just in case, somehow they eat the vegetables, they don't look at It's not my problem. Could he have made trouble for them? Absolutely, but he doesn't. Notice, please, uh, verse 9. What are, we, what are we told in verse 9? God caused Ashpenaz to show favor to them. Who did that? God. God caused that to happen. From this godless, self-seeking leader, God caused them to show favor. You know, while the Babylonians thought that they were in control of the world, they were in control of the local scene, the Bible makes it clear that there's only one who's in control. There's only one who orchestrates All the events of life, and he does so for the good of his people. And who is that? That's why we're here, to worship him, to acknowledge him, and to be reminded and to be encouraged, because we go back out there. God, you are good, and your will for me is good, pleasing, and perfect. I trust you, and I will, I will put my life out there for you. Ashpenaz simply explained to Daniel his reasons for not granting the request. I'm afraid of the king. And if I don't fulfill what he wants for you, and you show up and you don't look good, now remember, life is cheap in Babylon. It's subject to the whim of the king. This guy knows it. He says, that if you show up and you don't look good, questions are going to be asked. And those questions are gonna point right to me. I'm responsible and I'll lose my head, so we're not doing this. Daniel doesn't panic. Daniel doesn't even get angry. Well. Does he? No, what does he do? This is brilliant. Daniel is absolutely brilliant. He simply chooses another strategy to accomplish his goal. Now, it's, 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 it's not exactly clear from the passage that Ashpenaz just clearly shuts him down. He just explains his rationale for not going along with him. He doesn't say absolutely no. So another, another door has opened... And we see developing a theme in Daniel that will continue throughout the book. He is the incarnation, if you will, of a wise young man. He's a man who is learning how to navigate life. He's a man who knows and is learning the right action for the right situation. He is learning to know the right word to affect a godly result. And so he goes to the, to the guard that Ashpenaz has put in, in uh, um, charge. And Daniel proposes an interesting experiment to the guard. What's the experiment? A 10-day test. A 10-day test. What could possibly happen in 10 days? Now, let's say you're the guard, and he comes to you, and he proposes this test. And he says, you know, we just want to eat the vegetable part of the meal. We don't want to eat the meat and all that, all the, all that real rich stuff. We just want the vegetables. Now, you're the guard. Do you suppose the guard had access to all that rich food? Do you think he ate from the king's table? I don't think so. He's a guard. He's not an official. So if you're the guard, you're thinking, it's only 10 days. What harm could it do? 10 days. I could score a couple of hamburgers here. (laughs) Is that a possibility? No. So he... You know, I'm thinking this guy's this guy's calculating. You know, he's yeah, 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 I could score a you know a steak or two, maybe a Chateaubriand or something, take it home to the wife. <laughs> so he goes along with the ten-day test. The test works. Ten days. Ten days. The four eat vegetables, and then For the glory of God, they eat vegetables for three years. Vegetables and water. Mm. (laughs) Mmm. Whoa, doesn't that sound good? Three years. But notice verse 17. In verse 17 we read this. For the third time this phrase is used. Now, it's not translated this way, but in the Hebrew, it's very simply, it's it's, it's, God gave. God gave. God gave. Here's the third time. God gave something to someone. What did God give? He gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning to these four young guys. Why? Because they staked it all on God. We're going to deliberately limit ourselves. We're not going to eat all this rich food. We're going to to depend on you. We're going to eat only the minimum. And God, you're going to have to do the rest. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar and all those in his court who were involved in the education of these four young Jews would take credit for their brilliance, logically. But Daniel and his friends would know to whom the credit was really you and this would bolster their life this would give them confidence you see chapter one of the book of Daniel it really drives home the point of who who is really in control how are you gonna know that God's really in control unless you put yourself in a place you draw a line someplace you say I'm not crossing this line I could do it I could go there I could have this food, no problem, everybody else is doing it, I'm not going to cross that line because I want to know God's provision, God's grace, God's working in my life. Does this make sense to you? You see, today we feel the same tension Daniel felt, especially as we face around us a world that is rapidly changing in its ethical, religious, and permitted customs. There's stuff that's going on today that 20 years ago you would never, ever, ever predict would be happening. The current change is so powerful. It's unrelenting. It's just marching on. This current change is so powerful that it tends to swallow up in itself anything that does not strongly commit itself to another viewpoint. Boom. And undoubtedly we have to make, whether you like it or not, you have to make some concessions to change in this world. You have to. We're not called to live as the Amish are called. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to, to flavor the culture. We're called to make the culture thirsty. We're called to 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 stop the the the, the breakdown of culture, to bring light where there is darkness. And so we're not called called to to sit the culture out, say, I'm I'm, I'm opting out. I'm going to go live in the mountains all by myself. A lot of people are doing that because they don't know and understand these realities. We have to make some concessions to change. We cannot remain exactly where we were a generation ago, yet the direction of today's changes are often so radically alien to our Christian way that we cannot possibly follow it totally without being and losing our power to witness clearly to what we believe is the very nature of God. That's clouded today, the very nature of God. We won't be able to witness clearly as to what we understand and believe the gospel to be, nor would we be able to witness clearly to the meaning of life on earth. Why are we here? What is this all about? You see, unless you're willing to draw a line, the culture is going to suck you right in, overwhelm you. The God of our modern culture clearly is not the God of the Bible. The God of our modern culture is ultimately, note this please, the self. The self. And since the individual self is at the heart of the worship of secular culture, then the things that are prized above everything else are personal gratification, and self-realization. I'm trying to find myself. I want to realize who I am. I'm going to go live on a mountaintop. It's all about me. No, Jesus has already told me who I am. I am a servant. I'm a minister of the gospel. You see, personal gratification, self, it's all about self. Self Self-realization, self-actualization, self-satisfaction, self-will. I mean, you go on with all the self-phrases. Self. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must what? Deny yourself. This whole cult of self-esteem, we must teach our kids to esteem themselves. No, we must teach our kids they to be servants of all. We take the lower seat. We don't insist on our rights. Do we have rights? Yes. We just choose not to insist on them. You see, the whole culture has sold us a bill of goods and far, far too many Christians have bought into these things. In a situation where a measure of change is inevitable, though, we have to ask ourselves where we are to draw the line. Where are we to say no? Where are we to take a firm stand? It's different for each one of us. You have to prayerfully, thoughtfully decide for yourself where am I going to take my stand? Where is God going to demonstrate His power and His grace and His mercy in my life? And I'm going to take a stand and I'm going to trust Him. Each of us needs to think through some questions that I posed to you in your notes. Number one, how often has the culture enticed me to commit some sin for my personal gratification? or for my own self-realization, the enhancement of myself. I want to feel good about myself. Number two, how often have the luxuries of the world tempted me to disobey God for my own self and personal gratification or realization? Number three, how often have I allowed my desire for position, power, or fame to consume me for the sake of those things? Number four, how often have I put achieving my personal ambition before serving God? Because why? It's about me. It's about establishing my goals. It's about reaching my goals. Bottom line, where do I draw the line? Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. All men will hate you because of me. Oh, man, I can't have that. I I can't bear being hated. I just, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to compromise. You're going to shut up. You're not going to say anything. You're not going to let people know you're a believer. You don't want to be hated. I want to be liked. I want you you please like me. All men will hate you because of me, but he who, now notice, what does he say? He who what? Stands firm. He who draws the line and stands firm to the end, that's the one who is going to be delivered. That's the one who's going to be saved. Not the one who's wishy-washy and compromises again and again and again. Paul writes this. Same idea, same thought, same truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Say that with me. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself partially to the work of the Lord What is it? What did I say? Oh, I'm just so accustomed to that. I'm sorry. Always give yourself what? Fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is what? And that word labor in the Greek implies sweat. (laughs) It's not just you can do stuff at your convenience. This This is labor. Galatians 6 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not, what? Give up. I will not give up. I am going to stand firm. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. What cloud of witnesses? What's he referring to? All the people from chapter 11, right? All those, all those saints in the hall of fame of faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us... Now notice this. This is what all they did. Let's do. Let's follow their example. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. They ran their race. There are examples Let us throw off all this stuff. Let us run our race. Let's do this with perseverance. Let's take our stand. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not only all those saints, let's focus in on Jesus. who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's one of my favorite passages in Joshua chapter 24. Most of you know the passage. They're getting ready to... Consummate everything. Joshua challenges the people. Are going to renew the covenant. Joshua says to the people, he says, now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped around the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Each one of us today has to choose who am I going to serve? Am I going to serve myself or am I going to serve God? What stand am I taking? Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. Please read with me this last sentence. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua takes a stand. For me and my household, Daniel took a stand. Joshua takes a stand. Take a stand. Take a stand. Especially as we see the day approaching. Jesus spoke a paradox when he taught that though we are in the world, we are like him, not of it. And we must decide what we can say yes to and where we will say no. Amen? Father, thank you again. Lord, we say we love you today. We say that you are our God, and we worship you, and we praise you. We bless your name. Lord, open our minds and our hearts, our our very thoughts, to the realities that are set before us today. Just as Joshua challenged the, uh, the Israelites to choose this day, each one of us, Lord, must choose and make that choice our choice and be willing to die by it to serve you and serve you alone. Open our understanding to what that means, please, Father. Holy Spirit, lead us and where we should go. Father, we love you today. We give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen.